the hell happened? A bomb, I think. A Quiet Place Part 2 is the sequel to the hit blockbuster, A Quiet- Jonah, keep it down! Sorry, A Quiet Place Part 2 is about what happens when Emily Blunt and her family leave the farm and they- Jonah, you gotta stay quiet. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot, I forgot. A Quiet Place Part 2 is about what happens when a new guy played by Killian Murphy comes into the picture, starts hanging out with your mom, and tries to replace your- your papa. Shh, Jonah. Getting closer. The people need to know, Dave. A Quiet Place Part 2 is about cinema's worst stepdad. This is Galaxy Brains, and today we're shouting at the top of our little lungs about the horror sequel, A Quiet Place Part 2. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's mom's 23-year-old tennis instructor, Jonah Ray. Each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive to the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, our guest is film critic and the host of the podcast Unspooled, Amy Nicholson who will be giving us the horror history lesson we so richly deserve. But first, let's talk about the who, what, and why of A Quiet Place Part 2 in a segment we call Logic Brain. A Quiet Place Part 2 is a follow-up to the surprise blockbuster directed by John Krasinski about aliens with the most sensitive widow eels stalking a family in a rustic East Coast farmhouse. We're going to be hitting your sensitive whittle ears with all kinds of spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie yet, go to your own personal quiet place. And by that I mean just pop out your earbuds and put the podcast on pause until after you watch the movie. The first film was a simple premise that was executed to perfection and concluded with a brand new, very loud baby and a tear-soaked hero's death for Krasinski's protagonist, Lee Abbott. How does a movie turn into a full-fledged franchise with a lead character that's kicked the bucket? You replace him with a brand new character that serves the exact same function in the story. Enter Killian Murphy as Emmett, a friend of Lee's that we meet in an extended, thrilling flashback to the initial alien attack that ravaged the planet. Emmett is a lot like Lee. He's rugged, he's fiercely devoted to his family, and he's haunted by years hiding from aliens who indiscriminately destroy anything that moves like a toddler that accidentally drank a Dr. Pepper. The people that are left... Emmett has some reservations about functioning as the new protector for the Abbott family, but a well-placed monologue by Emily Blunt as matriarch Evelyn Abbott seals the deal. Emmett agrees to let the family stay in his bunker, deep inside an abandoned factory. But the real star of the movie isn't Killian Murphy or Emily Blunt. It's Millicent Simmons who portrays Reagan Abbott, the precocious daughter who figures out that there's a signal beckoning survivors across the ocean to a mysterious island that just might be humanity's salvation. But our intellectual salvation will be coming in a segment we call Critical Brain. Okay, Jonah, I gotta ask you, why is this movie not called A Quieter Place? I don't know. It makes me think that if there is a third one, which there could very possibly be, they won't even bother thinking about calling it The Quietest Place. And that just makes me angry. 
It is a classic second act in a trilogy where you take all the characters you love and you split them up into separate groups. This is really like three stories all at once. It's Killian Murphy and Millicent Simmons' character going off to the island. Emily Blunt trying to find some more oxygen tanks and medicine and whatnot. And then the son, who is the worst babysitter of all time, and the infant child. This is a pretty small cast, naturally, because it's an apocalyptic horror film. Jaiman Hansi was in it. He has his little moment where him and Killian Murphy talk about living on an island and like perseverance and all those themes of the movie that are so interesting. But did you know that Scoot McNary from Halt and Catch Fire is in this film? He is the lead of, let's just call him the others. Oh, he has a name, Jonah. His name is Marina Man. Marina Man. Yeah. <laughs> Marina Man. Watch him tie up your boat in less than five seconds. Marina Man. Do you need some chum for your fishing expedition? Call Marina Man. This summer, you will believe a man can Marina. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking there. Like, why don't they just give everybody a name? Just like Caleb, Jim, Ted. Jonathan Hansi's character's name is Man on Island. As an actor that's done some small parts here and there, sometimes you just get a utility part, you know, and then they don't really have a name for you. Just give them a name. It really helps their resume. <laughs> it really helps the IMDb. We talked after the movie was over about the editing of these three segments. It was so good. It was incredible. The pace of all three storylines all ramp up and come down perfectly. They sing with each other. They're all three of them are exciting in their own right. Even some of the actions, like someone moving their gun to the left and then cutting to someone opening a door in the same direction. And it's not overwrought. It's not done in a Quentin Tarantino or Wes Anderson kind of, or even a Guy Ritchie kind of way. It's crazy. I mean, this is this is what you said after we saw the movie, Dave. That John Krasinski, he's got the goods. He's got the chops, man. This is a movie, like you said, that doesn't have the show-offy moments that you might expect from somebody who's a newish filmmaker. He's really in command of the story at all times and the way that it ends, where all three of these stories converge again. And you see the connection that these two kids have when they kill their respective monsters and how it happens is for the same reason, basically, that she's putting that frequency through the radio. Also, just Killian Murphy is great, but Millicent was incredible. Just an incredibly, like, strong performance. Yeah, one of the better child actors of her generation, I think. I'm sure a lot of people know this already because of the first movie, but she is a deaf actress. And, you know, she brings a reality to the things that she has to do in the movie. You don't need the adults as much as you need to focus on her. And that's a very Spielbergian thing, isn't it? John Krasinski has been compared multiple times to Spielberg. It is funny, like after seeing it with some friends the other night, a buddy of mine is like, who would have thought that two of the biggest horror movie directors right now would be the guy from Key and Peele and the guy from The Office? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have this theory that horror and comedy are essentially the same thing, at least in terms of the grammar of the filmmaking, the rhythm of it. The same way that you build up to a scare is the same way you build up to a joke. I think that there's something to the magic trick and the, the setup and punchline. And when it comes to gore effects, they refer to these as gags, as you would like for a set piece in a comedy. There's always that dance. And for two things that are, I think, quite similar, they're also the hardest to combine. There's a seduction required of both comedy and horror that you are you're playing with people's emotions in a very particular way. 
And it shouldn't be surprising that the two best horror directors working right now in the studios are comedic actors, people who ha have an understanding of the way people relate to stimulus. Jonah, you're a stand-up comic, so you have to be good at dealing with people in the moment and how are they going to respond and then anticipating that. And I think that's definitely true in this movie is <laughs> the people behind the camera understood the way to manipulate our emotions. The master stroke of the first movie is giving them a baby because now you've got a baby and that baby is going to be on your mind the entire movie. You're going to be thinking, oh God, is the baby okay? What's going to happen to the baby? You know, I'll tell you this, Dave, as a man who is not going to have kids and has had a vasectomy, I did forget about the baby quite often. <laughs> well, I have a son. He's three and a half years old. And all I did this entire fucking movie is like, where's the fucking baby? <laughs> they put him in a box. That's not where babies go. Babies go in your arms and you snuggle them until they go to sleep. And then you put them in a box. You know, a crib doesn't have a top, Joe. It's not like a coffin. That's what it felt like half the time. It's like, we got to put the baby in the coffin. And we're going to put him in the water and we're going to send him off like Moses or something. That is a absurd image is, you know, the putting the baby in a box and then closing it. There is a couple of things in here that like did irk me. One of the things is in the beginning when John Krasinski is grabbing apples from the market, and he picks up an apple and kind of throws it up and catches it. That is, to me, like, a bit too much like, well, everything's A-okay. How do we show everybody that everything's kind of okay for right now? Juggling shit and, like, not paying for it when he leaves. I'll get you next time. There will be a next time. Yeah. And the other thing is that's like, on his whiteboard as he's trying to figure out what makes these aliens tick. And he has it circled a couple times. What are their weaknesses? Is he really for one second thinking he might forget to try and figure out what these monsters' weakness is? I better write this on the whiteboard super big so I remember to try and figure out. Underline it. What are their weaknesses? I can't believe I forgot. Ice cream, you know, a good romantic comedy. <laughs> Let's talk about those monsters, shall we? I want to talk about the monsters because we didn't get to see them a ton in the first movie. But in this, we see these monsters all the time. I can't help but think about the Cloverfield monster, which was sort of the first truly grotesque movie monster in a studio movie where it's like, this doesn't even seem natural. There's something completely wrong about the way that it's put together. And I think these are certainly influenced by that creature design. They have a vibe of yeah, otherworldliness. The teeth are pretty close to venom. The long arms, they're almost bipedal. They kind of remind me of the wheelies from Return to Oz. Mm. Kind of uh, weird, kind of hunched over. It could almost be a person in a suit, but it's not. The wheelies in, in that movie, one of the scariest things I've ever seen in my entire life. Come here, chicken! I could not watch that movie alone. I don't know what it was about that movie, but those designs and that aesthetic and that world just like burned into my brain is the most grotesque thing ever on screen. It's pretty disgusting. And also, here's another thing: the fact that these things can't swim, maybe a little bit of a a little bit of a reference to signs as well. Like you know, they didn't like the water, but they can drive a boat. Apparently, <laughs> I don't know anything about boats, Dave. If you know me, I'm kind of anti-boat. <laughs> 
He's a real landlubber, that Joe DeRay. <laughs> Loves his feet on the ground, you know? Also, as a person named Jonah, not the smartest move getting on a boat. Oh, there we go. Yeah, a little biblical reference for you here. I don't know when God's angry at me. He's going to cause some storms. Some guys are going to throw me off. I'm going to get swallowed by a large fish slash whale. I don't know when that's going to happen to me, but apparently it will eventually. Jonah, I'm Jewish, so I can answer this question for you. God's always angry at you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was raised Catholic, so I know. Yeah, right. uh, exactly. Let's check this out. So I guess I didn't really understand what the aliens did. I thought they were maybe eating people, but I'm realizing they just come in and fuck shit up. They just come in and just swat at people, but they don't eat them at all. The implication is that they are just so disturbed by sound that they go buck wild. They go crazy. We don't know if they have a motivation, what their civilization is like. My theory is that they are the attack dogs of a greater alien civilization where the aliens go, well, we're not sure what the humans will do. So we're going to send out our little first line of attack. And it's these chaotic, crazy aliens that are just going to get rid of most of humanity. And then once they're done, that's when the owners of those aliens come in and then they colonize the planet. Interesting. Okay. I, I kind of like that. There's sort of like the advanced guard or, or kind of like a biological weapon. You know, monsters back in the day used to have some semblance of naturalness. Like I think about Cronenberg or I think about H.R. Giger or something. And these monsters just feel like they have nothing to do with the natural world. And I wonder if that's because we live in this age where nothing makes sense, where it feels like we're on the precipice of destroying the planet. And you know, the way that we are polluting the environment, putting things in the ocean, like we're going to start to see all kinds of horrors and disgusting, gross things that don't make sense. I do think on the other side of that, there is that rise in researched sci-fi and the idea of like, oh, what would creatures look like if it wasn't an oxygen-based planet or what are the elements of another planet? What would be the creature that would survive in a climate that's not of our own? That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I think in the movies that we grew up watching, it was the imagination run wild. You know, the alien was poetic and artistic. And these monsters do have that, like you said, rational irrationality where we don't quite understand the reasons why it looks the way that it does. And it looks completely foreign to us. But that's because the filmmakers have decided we're going to try to create some rationalization, some reality around the design. It's not just going to be like cool looking, like the Predator. It's going to have some kind of basis in reality. And, you know, we talked about symbolism of monsters in the Godzilla versus Kong episode. And Godzilla was specifically about something. And these monsters could be anything. But because I think of my background and, and my relationship with family from losing my father or, or from being a father, I can't help but think about these monsters being a representation of forces beyond our control that are, are wrecking our families and are ruin, ruining the unity that we kind of feel within our family. Uh, environment. There is something very symbolic, I think, about when Killian helps Millicent up on the bridge and they he points at like the island and the boat. And then at the same time, they're intercutting with Emily Blunt's character going to where her son died and taking off her ring and putting it on top of the cross, which is, I think, in the story time-wise, she took her wedding ring off days after her husband was brutally killed by an alien. And I think that's she could have kept that ring on for a little longer, I well, feel. Well, she moved on real fast. My mom still wears her wedding ring. So shame on you, Emily Blunt's character. All right. 
The symbolism for me is pretty clear. This is a movie about divorce. This is about divorce, this movie. Yeah, this is a movie about divorce. Granted, okay, yes, I'm kind of extrapolating here a little bit, Jonah, but I think there's something to be said about Killian Murphy's character, Emmett, being a little bit of a stepdad figure. As a divorced dad myself, I could tell you without a doubt that being replaced by some handsome stranger that your kids love is the greatest horror imaginable. I don't know. I mean, having a different chiller dad who carries a Bowie knife and sleeps in an abandoned factory. I mean, that sounds pretty sweet. The dude was in 28 Days Later. I mean, besides, Dave, this movie isn't really about divorce. It's Lee Abbott didn't run off with younger women at the end. It's called a metaphor, Jonah, which is like 90% of what we talk about on this show every week. I know what a metaphor is. I read. But I just think that maybe this one is a bit flimsier than the other ones we've done. If you think I'm going to stop now, you're wrong. I'm just getting started. You see, uh, Quiet Place Part 2 isn't just about divorce. It's about the destruction of the entire American way of life. Hold on. I'm going to put on this hazmat suit, okay? Because I know where this is going. Hold on. While you're doing that, I'm just going to say the aliens represent chaos. They act without purpose. They know nothing but destruction. The decay of the social order made physical. All that stands in their way is a single, modest family living in harmony with the wreckage of what's left of civilization. Dan, I gotta be honest, it's really hard to hear you inside the suit. It's all, like, pretty muffled. It's crucial that the setting of this film is the eastern seaboard, the birthplace of the American project. I can see my own breath on this mask. (laughs) The Abbots are most vulnerable when they're separated, when they don't have a male authority figure. This is a movie that both advocates for and mourns the loss of the American nuclear family. Jonah, I can see colors. I can see shapes. So many wonders. Yeah, yeah, you're about to transform into some kind of crazy radioactive energy being, right? No, I think I'm just dehydrated. So did I just put the hazmat gear on for nothing then? You look great. I'm going to take this off. Can you can you reach the zipper? I can't. Oh, sorry, man, but you're really hard to hear. No, just get the zipper. I need you to get the zipper. It should be on the back. I didn't... Gotta do the mid-roll ad. Dave, wait, no, please don't leave me in here. It really, it smells so bad. Hang tight. I just drank a really large Topo Chico, and I just, I, I, I really need to get out of here as fast as I can. Folks, when we return, we'll talk to film critic Amy Nicholson about A Quiet Place Part Two's place in the pantheon of American domestic horror. Dave, I really gotta make a pee-pee. If you could just rip it off, get that Bowie knife from Killian Murphy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. Jonah chewed his way out of his encounter suit, and now we're ready to hop on a boat, float across the sound, and dock on an island refuge in our minds. This is a safe space for overthinking. Joining us on this wild ride is host of the podcast Unspooled, Amy Nicholson. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a real pleasure. It is my pleasure to be here. Hello. Hello. A Quiet Place, these are movies about family, but I think Quiet Place Part 2 differs a little bit from that first film in that it's about a broken family now. But even though our good friend Lee Abbott 
John Krasinski's character is dead. We get Killian Murphy as it kind of like the guy who shepherds the daughter across the bay to the island, and he's kind of like the father figure now. So what I'm asking you is, ultimately, is this film about getting a stepdad? Uh, n- no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time we've ever had a guest just flat out say I'm wrong, which is great. No, but I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff in here, though, about, like, families and replacement. But I think John Krasinski, as the faded dead hero of the last film and is the director of this one and is the director whose wife is in this film is not going to be like, I'm going to put a man in there who looks like he could replace me as a stepdad. <laughs> like he doesn't put John Cena in the film, you know, like he puts Cillian Murphy, who's usually a bad guy in most things. I feel like he's trying to stack the deck and say like, I can't really be that replaced. I mean, the daughter straight up says to Emmett, the character that he plays, you will never be my father. That felt out of place. He did nothing in that moment. He was really just showing himself to be like not a great guy. And she's like, you're nothing like him. And I almost want him to respond with, yeah, no shit. <laughs> no, you're right. I, like picking up on their dynamic, it did come in hot as I really thought he was going to step into that position. I was like, wow, he's going to, you know, seduce Emily Blunt's character, even though she's nursing. Like, that's wild. All right. I guess we really need to repopulate immediately now. <laughs> and then the way that like Regan, the daughter, you know, played by Melissa Simmons comes in, like she just starts sneering. It's like you walked into her family house with a box of donuts and was like, I'm your new stepdad. She's like, God, no, you're not. It felt a little bit strange, right? It felt like they were accusing him of being something he seems to have no interest in doing. But this is my point. You know, when somebody comes into your family, after you've suffered a loss, if it's a divorce or it's a death, you are skeptical. So maybe this isn't specifically about divorce, but it certainly is about how a family deals with grief and overcomes and and, and what they do to outsiders. I think you are completely correct that this is a film about replacement. You know, that Millicent is learning that she will replace her dad more than anybody else, that she will step up because she's the one who's like learned lessons from him, absorbed his courage. You know, the idea that a parent can live on in you after they're gone, I think is really emotional. But, like, her mother, I think, doesn't see her that way yet because she still sees her as this little kid. It's Cillian Murphy who I think sees her as an adult. Like, he's the one person in the film who, like, doesn't try to parent her. He trusts her. So I think that makes him a good mentor. Maybe I'm just, like, rhapsodizing about mentors because I think mentorship is a lost art. So, uh, yeah, he sees her as the adult she is before her mother does. I think that's a key person in her life. In multiple points in my life, I could have used somebody to just be like, this is how you are supposed to function as an adult. This is what you're supposed to do in your career, what you're supposed to do in relationships. And there isn't that. There isn't that like non-family relationship with wise adults. That's true. Because like, can your parents ever really trust you as an adult? Do your parents really want to be the person that you talk to about like your intimate details of your relationship with your partner? I don't like it when he treats me like this in the bedroom. Like your parents don't want anything to do with that. But your friends don't know any more than you. You're all dummies in your generation. So it'd be nice to have an older figure that you could trust and isn't like, why don't you just come home and I'll make you cookies and you don't have to date anybody? <laughs> yeah, that that's every parent's advice is dump him, dump her. She's terrible for you. You're perfect. And that's not useful. You're 100% right. So I guess Celia Murphy's going to tell her who to date. That'll be interesting. <laughs> Definitely not Marina Man. That guy is shady. <laughs> if this isn't a movie about divorces, isn't a movie about stepdads, and it's more just kind of like general loss and grief, what horror films do you think capture that feeling better than or as well as this movie? Oh, gosh. I mean, so many, right? Like, when I was really thinking about this, 
this idea of a disrupted family, of like splintering apart or somebody new kind of penetrating the nucleus of the family, that feels like one of our oldest stories. I don't know. I feel like somewhere in the Bible, there's definitely bad stepdads, right? But I mean, we're talking like Brothers Grimm, Snow White, Cinderella. Like this is one of those stories that I think we work and rework in film. And the ones that really come to my mind, besides Flowers in the Attic, because I'm like a twisted kid who loves paperbacks and besides Hereditary, like I love stuff like Hellraiser. You know, which is literally about a teenage girl whose stepmother is like secretly slept with her uncle. And then like because he died and a curse has to go like kill men in their house to help him grow his skin back. Like that is twisted. It's literally like she's reconstructing part of her family, but she's reconstructing a demon version of her family. Or the one that I think doesn't get enough credit is um, War of the Worlds with the Tom Cruise one with Steven Spielberg. Like that film to me is about two things, 9-11 and divorce. And the divorce part of it is fascinating that Tom Cruise comes in in that movie as the divorced dad whose kids aren't that close to him. And he tries to be a dad in that movie in the most basic sense, right? Like he's like, well, my job as a dad is I'm the protector and I'll keep them alive and safe. And then at the end of the film, it's like they survive, but nothing is healed and they go inside and went back with their mom and their stepdad and they shut the door on him. And it's like, you cannot actually reclaim your position as the father in this family, even if you help the kids stay alive through a crazy alien attack. Yeah, it's like the end of The Searchers. <laughs> it is. Like the closing of the door is like, you can't stay. We appreciate what you did, but you can't stay. Yeah. And I mean, the idea that like that Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg made this movie together. I mean, all Steven Spielberg talks about is like mommies and daddies getting divorced, right? Like that's his favorite topic. Like he's still not over it. And the same thing with Tom Cruise, like his dad left when he was a kid. So it feels like they got beers and were like, are you still fucked up from your childhood? I am. But now we're adults. What do we do about it? Are we fucked up? And then they make this movie. You know, the comparison between Spielberg's work and what Krasinski's trying to do with these two movies is very apt. And that's why I think I went to the divorce immediately. Uh, and War of the Worlds very clearly was an inspiration to this movie. It feels very much part of that aesthetic that like the small town is the, the microcosm of the world. And isn't it so sad that we're losing this small town? E even Tim Robbins's character, the kind of crazy survivalist, has some connection to Killian Murphy's character in this movie, I, I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, what's interesting in the backstory that we kind of get when Killian Murphy comes in is we're realizing that people in this world don't all have the same information. Right. Because like, uh, you know, we had John Krasinski as like our daddy narrator in the first one. And he's like, this is what we know. And this is how people survive. And the idea that he doesn't know everything, like they don't know that these guys can't swim. Uh, but other people figured that out like week two, week one. And they've just been living 400 days without knowing about the swimming deal. I thought that was interesting, this idea of. Maybe your family doesn't know everything. Yeah. Like, are they going to find another group of people that have been holding out? And it's just like, turns out they love to dance. <laughs> <laughs> we need to attack them during brunch. They always take brunch every day between one and three. So that's when we got to go after them. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pivot, though, and talk about another aspect of, of the family unit in this film. And that is the baby. The stuff with the baby in the box makes me feel... Like nuts. Like, is there any better way to guarantee anxiety from an audience than to put a baby in danger in a movie? This is where I sound like a bad person because I know that you're a lovely father and I do not have a kid. And I was like, I wanted the baby to die. 
in the movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jonah said, I didn't care about the baby at all. I forgot there was a baby because he's also not a parent. <laughs> but I was like biting my nails the whole time and spitting popcorn out and losing it. They should have gave the baby a gun, raised the stakes, <laughs> have it do something for once. Chekhov's baby. <laughs> I thought like it would be really interesting if Noah Jupe, if his character like accidentally killed the baby, like was trying to do a good job. And it's like you can't keep all of your children alive in these circumstances. Also, why why did she stick him with babysitting? Like, I, I didn't understand any of the thing where she was like, Cillian Murphy has to go get my daughter. Because I can't. And I was like, oh, clearly because she has a baby. But no, she's just going to go run errands. Well, there was a good plot reason for that. The baby was running out of oxygen and the son had the wound from the bear trap. So he needed that wound to be cleaned and redressed. So I got that. She had to do it. But it was like the worst possible person to watch that baby. It would have been better if Jonah was watching the baby. What baby? Oh, no. (laughs) Exactly. Like you just forgot it was there. But interesting to think about, that baby might never develop language skills. It might never talk. It might only communicate in grunts and whistles because it's going to be living in a world where nobody speaks or speaks very rarely. I didn't think about that. Like all the words that we'll learn are just like, shh, be quiet. (laughs) Like just practical nonsense. It won't learn any. Run. (laughs) Run. Yeah. The only word he does is run. So sad. This movie being the destruction of the idyllic American family. It's got a lot of history behind it. Lots of movies have been about this very topic, but it feels like most of them are about largely white middle-class environments. Halloween, I think about a lot. That's a mostly white small town. You don't really see this story told in different cultural environments. Uh, Why is it that we keep coming back to this particular image of the small town with a mostly white population. I know it's interesting, right? And and it feels like Halloween doesn't even just crystallize it that Halloween started it. You know that Halloween kind of started the idea that terror is scarier when it happens to people in the suburbs. That was I think a lot of John Carpenter's basic idea even behind it. Cuz when you think about horror films before then it's like Bad things might happen if you're a hitchhiker on the road, but it's usually there's a mad scientist in a lab somewhere and something goes wrong. Like the horror happening to this like suburban family, it feels old because it's happened our entire life and it's really tired because it's happened our entire life. The idea of here's a bad thing happening and it's really bad because it's not just happening to them, like those people living near the castle of the mad scientist, it's happening to us. But then that idea of us has become so lazy and so default and so inaccurate that it doesn't feel like us anymore, which I wonder is why I check out, honestly, on a lot of these like suburban family films, because it's not really even a family that I like relate to super much. And it feels lazy to me. Like it feels like you will care about these characters because I've set like the most basic default human setting on them. <laughs> it's a mommy and a daddy and a baby and like a kid. And don't you care about them? And what if you don't care that much? Like what if you are like me and you want to see the world burn? Yeah, there's not a lot of stakes in a movie like this for you. I do think, you know, we're so clearly just recycling all of these tropes from the 20th century. The original Halloween felt like a revelation, I'm sure, to the people who saw it in the 70s because it was unique. At least it was unique for American audiences. And what Carpenter, I think, did in Halloween was say, I'm going to take that idea of the mysterious murderer with a butcher knife 
and I'm going to put it in the scariest milieu possible for American audiences. What's the scariest idea for American audiences? And that's the suburbs being attacked by an outsider. And I don't think we even have an idea of what the suburbs are in America anymore. Well, isn't that what Attack the Block kind of blew up because it felt so brand new because it was just a, like alien attack movie in an urban setting. That's what made everyone go, whoa, shit. Yeah, it's true. And I think apartments are equally scary in that when you think about like hauntings and stuff, I mean, if you live in an apartment, you're more guaranteed to have crazy things go wrong in your apartment. Like, have you guys ever looked up your own address on an old newspaper site? I did it once and I found out that in my apartment in like 1924, there was an advertisement to like send away here to my address to buy magical fortune reading cards. My house like had like kind of gypsy fortune teller witches living into it that were selling cards to people. I mean, that's incredible. Like if we had more apartment stuff, you have more freedom for things like that. But to bring it back to Carpenter, like Carpenter was trying with Halloween to make a statement about the evil that lives in the suburbs. Because when you think about it, Michael Myers, he's from the suburbs. He's a child of the suburbs. Like, he's not an outsider, really. Like, he grew up there. And John Carpenter talks about, like, moving to the South when he was a kid and realizing that people in the South who live in ordinary houses and think that they're ordinary Americans are actually evil because he was in the South during a lot of the civil rights movement and seeing that he wasn't used to racism because he was from the North. He wasn't used to seeing it as blatantly as he saw it when he moved to the South. And then I think like this idea that he had gets like mutated by people who do it really badly and they don't understand where he was going with it. And I think it becomes really toxic at a certain point. When you think about the most freaked out people in America, it feels like people who live in rural suburbs, you know, like it's people who live in rural suburbs that are terrified about like Antifa coming in in the middle of the night and killing everybody. It's like that Fox News fear feels like it goes hand in hand with these movies about like you ordinary nice people. Here's the trouble. And John Carpenter was like, no, you are the monsters. And everybody just missed that point. Yeah, I guess it's hard to scare people in a movie if they're constantly being scared by everything else around them and all the people that don't look exactly like them. And also, you know, there's something to be said about the fact that we live in a time where there's so much strife and so much economic uncertainty that the horror has kind of changed the way that it looks at, at certain things. Um, there's a book called Ghostland in American History and Haunted Places by this author, Colin Dickey. And he says that we see more stories of haunted houses emerge in eras when there's lots of financial strife. And home ownership is threatened. I owned a home. I got lucky because my ex-wife's father gave me a bunch of money to buy a house. But for the most part, it's really hard to do. Um, and in these these periods of time, the Great Depression, the 80s, have you seen this trend before? Have you seen movies that kind of reflect those moments? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the big one that gets pointed to in horror is how in the 80s, there was such a surge in vampire films coming out of this fear of the AIDS epidemic before people understood even what it was or how it was passed around or before people understood that you couldn't just catch it, you know, by like sharing a bathroom with somebody. And so you have this rise in movies about blood. There's a book I really like, actually. It's kind of got a similar name. It's like called Wasteland and it's by um, B. Scott Poole. And that's a book that traces a lot of our modern horror elements to World War I. And it goes all the way back then, and it talks a lot about, this is the part that made a huge impact on me, about zombies as being a monster created in World War I. That for the first time in war, 
we not only had the ability to like have weapons that inflicted mass casualties on people, but we had the medical know-how to keep people who had been destroyed alive. And it turned into this idea of you'd be on the street in Europe and you would see people who looked like monsters, like it was a new type of monster. And the zombie itself comes out of this like anti-war film that was made in the silent era during the war, while the war was still going on, where this filmmaker had a movie called J'accuse, where he shows a battlefield in Verdun, France, and all of these soldiers have died, and he resurrects them, and all of the zombies walk en masse to the local town, and they're like, why have you done this to us? And so that walk that we know as the zombie walk even comes out of the injuries that these soldiers had when they were resurrected. And so when you think about it, like zombies becoming this touchstone for war continues on. You know, they become this like symbol that we see again, like in the time of the war and terror, like zombies pop up again as the genre. And I think it's because there are these there are these symbols that something is really wrong with like the average man. I think there's something in that this idea of like, how do times of war reenact themselves in our zombie films? Yeah, I think, you know, in this movie, in A Quiet Place Part Two, we're not explicitly in a time of war, but we're certainly in a time of internal strife and internal anxiety and animosity. And for these movies to be successful, they had to tap into at least a little bit of that idea that you are not safe outside for whatever reason, and that you're you're gonna have to set your home on fire, you know, like everything is falling apart around you. And the worst thing you can do is talk about how you feel <laughs> like this is a movie where people are not talking about their problems and it's all very silent. And we live in a society where everyone's talking all the time and constantly in communication with each other. And that communication can be incredibly toxic. So it is interesting that this is a movie that's about keeping your mouth shut <laughs> when all we do is chit chat all day across multiple platforms. Oh, God, that just made me think that. A Quiet Place 3 is probably about the people using Twitter silently to alert you where the monsters are. <laughs> a TikTok uh, video about how to kill a monster. Amy, the last question I want to ask you before we go is a simple question, I think. What will happen first? John Krasinski wins a Best Director Oscar or you are able to afford to own a home in Los Angeles? Oh, man. Oh, that's hard because I'm really lazy and I don't like moving. So I want to just buy like one home and be done with it. But I'm also really ambitious and I want like a big house if I'm going to bother. I want like a conversation pit and a swimming pool <laughs> and multiple offices for me and my boyfriend because we're both solitary cats who like to roam around and need space. But yet I don't want John Krasinski to win an Oscar. <laughs> I just don't. I don't know why. No real reason. Like I'm sure he's fine. But uh, I don't know. I'm like I'm against that. Oh, but he probably will. Honestly, like he'll make something really, really calculated. I'm excited to see some good news. The movie that should be great. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This was, of course, the smartest conversation anyone's going to have about A Quiet Place Part Two because Amy Nicholson was a part of it. Oh, you guys, it was so fun to be here. Thank you for having me. As you all know, each week we wrap up the show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. That means you. Here's one now. Yeah, so so they say Star Wars is a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but I don't know, man. It kind of looks like the future. <laughs> 
<laughs> it kind of looks like the future. Is that is that uh, the guy from uh, Red Letter Media calling in? It's definitely not the future because he's you know he says it pretty upfront. It's a long time ago. If we want to force our timeline onto Star Wars instead of just accepting it as a fantasy, we'd just say like, oh, yeah, everything kind of fell apart. And then we started over on this little tiny planet called Earth. I do like that's the guy watching that. I don't know. Just like watching stars for the first time. Like, OK, Galaxy, a long, long time ago. OK. And then it starts. He's like, I don't know. Laser gun. Yeah, it doesn't seem right. That seems like a, something that would come out later in life. Shouldn't they be riding horses or something? Watch the postman. <laughs> Well, if you want to call in and ask us why Star Wars doesn't have more horses, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take. Our number is 213-570-8069 and is also listed in our show notes. Give us a call and leave a voicemail with your Galaxy Brain take. But please make it weird. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, we are covering nothing. No, that is not the name of a Bulgarian action movie starring Liam Neeson. We are actually taking a break. We'll be stretching our calves and warming up our vocal cords for our next episode on June 17th, when we'll be covering In the Heights. In the Heights, in the Heights, Jonah's take, is it right? For two terrible singers, we sure do a lot of singing on this show. (laughs) We sure do, Jonah. And here's a list of who you can thank for that. Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikishan. Our executive producer is Matt Patches, and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant, and Russ Frushstick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizik, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. Take us away, Bobby Darren. Take us away across the sea. Beyond. It's beyond the sea, but, you know, you guys get